Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2023, and this week we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past week, particularly last week at NAFSA. And when, before we get to those questions, I do want to give a special shout out to those watching live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter. Thank you for uh, joining the live conversation, but also uh, those that watch on repeat. Uh, I know we're all busy. We can't always get to these live. And I just want to say how grateful I am uh, for those that reached out last week in person at NAFSA, people whom I've never met before. Uh, who are coming up to me and sharing how valuable they find these conversations on Wednesdays for the midweek roundup. And uh, it's really heartwarming to me to know that you're out there and it's I'm not just a voice in the wind here. Uh, it's, it's good that, that uh, the content is being well received and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, introduce yourselves and to let me know where you're, where you're connecting from and how uh, you found out about us and what the, what the roundup has, has meant for you. So thanks so much. That really uh, gives me the motivation I need to keep doing these and making this a regular part of my uh, weekly uh, international edification journey. So uh, as we do each week, we take our themes for these questions from our newsletter. Uh, so if you are already watching the Roundup, hopefully you're also getting the newsletter or subscribed to it. There are a couple different ways you can do that. I'll be dropping the links to uh, our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, or you can go down, see an archive of all the past editions of the newsletter, as well as subscribe by entering your details. Uh, you can also, uh, there, what you get each week, if you sign up that way through the website, uh, an email version of it that comes to your inbox Monday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern, uh, and that will be your uh, news for the week uh, of not only international ed, but also any social media news that impacts what we do in international education and how you can leverage these uh, these stories uh, to do help you improve what you do in your work uh, in international ed. Uh, so those that comes to you in an email format if you just subscribe through the website. If you prefer international ed news through uh, to, to, to get it through LinkedIn, uh, we have a version of the newsletter, identical version uh, available uh, to, that you can subscribe to via LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn, we're just about to hit 1,100 users, uh, 1,100 subscribers via LinkedIn, another 100 uh, through the email version. So we're really grateful to be reaching such a wide range of individuals through the newsletter. So please do be sure to subscribe so you're you can see the stories that are developing on Mondays and then have an idea, perhaps, on what we're going to cover here on Wednesdays in question format and go a little bit deeper. Uh, those are the hot takes on Monday, and we'll go a little bit deeper on some of those themes here on the Roundup on Wednesdays. And also, uh, if you prefer not to see me, and that's fine, uh, there's an audio-only podcast version available across all major podcast providers. So do take advantage of that if you have a moment and would prefer to listen rather than watch uh, these conversations as they happen. So let's get right into our first question of the day. And this uh, is one that has been a hot topic for a couple of years, and it was two years ago this summer that the United States uh, government uh, uh, from the White House and issue, issued a statement, a joint statement on support for international education. Uh, and this was uh, a, a, a declaration that involved Department of State, Department of Commerce, uh, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Education. All were involved in various ways and ways, shapes and forms in uh, pieces of this uh, joint statement. 
And uh, last year at the USA Forum, there was another topic. Uh, there was a topic at the at the uh, one of the sessions was how what's what's happened since a year since that, that declaration. And so what what we'll talk about today is kind of the lingering effects of that that statement last year uh, and this year and how we move out, how, what progress has, has taken place and what do we see as some, kind of the vision for, for the U.S. But the question is, why is a U.S. international ed strategy needed but not happening anytime soon? Uh, I had the fortune of being interviewed for this article. Um, there was an article in Inside Higher Ed that came out on Thursday or Friday last week, and I'll drop the link into the chat as well. Uh, what that article basically talked about is uh, the themes of NAFSA coming back to D.C., being in person again. And uh, the, th the article was entitled, The U.N. of Higher Ed Returns to a Changed World. And with the subtitle, A Mix of Optimism and Anxiety, defined this year's NAFSA conference three years after the COVID pandemic upended international higher ed. So it's a kind of a look at what, how the conference has changed. Uh, 6,000 last year in Denver to over 8,500 in D.C. The hopes was it, the D.C. conference would attract a little bit more, uh, up to 10,000, which was kind of the pre-pandemic norm for conferences in D.C., uh, that didn't reach that amount and still some lingering doubts on who's who's coming, but maybe it's budget issues coming out of COVID. Uh, last year we saw in Denver a lot of 40% of the attendees were first timers uh, that didn't really have a lot of expertise in the field. So maybe not, not a lot of them stuck or could afford to come again this year. But the good, the good scene uh, at the convention center uh, in DC was that the return of the country pavilions in large numbers. Uh, and that certainly was a very significant hole in the conference last year is overseas visitors that frankly weren't able to travel to get into the country to expensive limited flights, uh, border restrictions, all of that. But this year they reopened. China had a strong presence. Uh, many of the other uh, countries from Europe uh, that had smaller or no presence last year were back in full force. Uh, Latin America had very strong contingents from Colombia, from Mexico, other nations in the region that had uh, significant university presence there. Uh, we had others. Uh, Australia had a huge pavilion there. Uh, uh, you had the, also the, the traditional, uh, traditional folks from Korea, Japan, uh, um, top sending countries, Canada, uh, had uh, a very significant presence as well. So there was certainly a large growth in a number of, uh, of pavilions, kind of back to pre-pandemic levels, maybe a little bit under, but at least in terms of the exhibitors, uh, the exhibit hall wasn't perhaps as full as it was the last time it was in D.C. in 2019, but certainly the volume of, of people coming was, was significant. Uh, from overseas, and that, that, that certainly warms the heart a bit. The article itself uh, obviously interviews Fanta, uh, NASA's new executive director, past president as a university representative, but uh, now executive director, and as I, I've told uh, the, told the uh, the writer for this article that uh, NAFSA, hiring Fanta, and I've said this on social before, hiring Fanta as the executive director is the best decision that NAFSA has ever made. And her impact on the, the topics of the themes of the conference certainly was felt. Uh, her work in, in the DEI space at American University, in addition to her being an international student herself, certainly sees to be seems to be the driving force of, of what NAFSA is uh, becoming. And in the article, uh, she certainly makes the case for uh, the uh, kind of the historical toll of COVID on, on what we're seeing uh, at the conference and membership. But uh, there were some frustrations uh, 
the, uh, from some that were uh, at the event that uh, there's still some areas that are being underfunded uh, in terms of international programs and recruitment at U.S. institutions. Uh, others voice concerns over rising geopolitical tensions, and frankly, those are always there in one way, shape, or form. It's just different, different stuff, different day in a lot of cases. But there are some serious big issues with uh, Russia's invasion of, the, of Ukraine, uh, tensions with China and all of that, uh, and fears that uh, COVID has completely uh, forever changed the landscape of international higher ed. Uh, so there's a lot of that happening uh, that what I see, uh, what I had to had to had to share uh, with the art uh, with the uh, writer of the article, is that um, the the new normal uh, isn't going to be like it was before. Uh, there are significant changes that have happened, and certainly uh, uh, other commentators in the article reflected that as well. Uh, what I uh, was asked primarily about is uh, NAFSA uh, kind of serving as the article talks about this, serving as kind of the main driver for an international education strategy in this country. We've seen other nations, uh, the UK, Australia, uh, New Zealand, uh, Canada, to a lesser extent, they have great policies, but not necessarily a unified approach, but certainly have more things working for them than against them at this point. Uh, probably getting too big uh, might be one concern, but in, in the US, we've never had a national strategy. Uh, people had talked about that joint statement uh, that is the focus of this article two years ago, uh, kind of being the beginning steps, but it wasn't a strategy. Uh, what it did, it has empowered the federal departments, state, commerce, education, and homeland security, to do what they could to maximize the, um, the opportunities to grow study abroad, uh, U.S. students studying abroad, but also to grow our inbound international po uh, populations. Uh, that is a great uh, uh, directive, but until it gets federal White House level support and direction, there's going to be there are going to be certain things that would be real game changers that aren't going to happen because they're tied up in politics. They require congressional action. They require, frankly, as I mentioned in the article, some political capital being spent to make and, and, and drive uh, this cause forward. So I've, ta I've advocated for an international ed czar in the past, and I, uh, talking about the need for that White House-level direction uh, and coordination of efforts, because that's, that was a challenge we saw last year at the USA Forum. We saw commerce uh, and state and uh, education and homeland security give uh, updates on what they've been doing individually uh, in their own spheres of influence uh, as well as um, uh, that they the fact that they have these um, intra-departmental meetings uh, so that that's happening but uh, the challenge is that there's only so much they can do on their own. And that's pretty much what, what this has been left to. It's that they've been left to their own devices to do what's possible within their own sphere of influence. And keep, it, keep in mind um, what we're also challenged here with a national strategy is until it has that White House level support that really moves things forward, we're lacking in coordination, we're lacking in direction, we're lacking in funding, we're lacking in regulatory change that has to happen to facilitate uh, a more broad opening of the doors uh, of the U.S. to 
the best and the brightest. That's always been what we've said we attract, uh, that we have foreign students today, world leaders tomorrow that have come to the United States. Uh, we know that a third of all uh, world leaders did some part of their education in the United States. So we play a role in that. Uh, and there, the evidence is there to back that up. But what is what have we been doing to enhance those opportunities? beyond just the world leaders, but to, enha uh, to enhance some of the, some folks are going to drive uh, their countries forward in education, in uh, business, in culture, in, um, uh, in the environment, in other areas of life that uh, are vital to their own growth as, as nations. So we see uh, lack, a lack, certainly that lack of unification uh, and policies that, depending on the president, uh, can uh, change uh, flow, kind of wave with the wind, and uh, and which, whichever way that that new president comes in and direction can impact policy, until there's real change regulatory uh, in regulatory means. For example, the one that most impacts what I th what would be a game changer for me is if and would open the doors wide and it does require congressional action is for F1 to be considered a dual intent category. We've seen what's happened in the UK that uh, the UK government considers international students and their dependents coming in as net impacts on uh, migration numbers. They consider them migrants even though they are, it's a temporary visa category that they generally return home, and in large numbers they generally return home. Uh, the challenge has been, uh, what do you do with them? Are, should we consider them all immigrants? In, in Australia, they consider um, many student, international students that are coming uh, two-stage migrants, uh, that they come in to study as their entry point to work opportunity, and whether those are those opportunities. And sometimes those students want to accelerate the, that transition from study to work. Uh, but that exists. Canada, same way. There's, a ver there's ways uh, in Canada, UK, Australia, where students from the, from the get-go, uh, when they're enrolled in students, can work off campus uh, and doesn't have to be directly related to their program, like we require in the United States for OPT or curricular OPT. It has to be done curricular practical training, not curricular OPT. That doesn't exist. But uh, for international students in the United States, they're limited to 20 hours a week on campus unless it's in an emergency situation and then they have to apply for a particular permission to do that. Uh, but that uh, opportunity for getting into the work world in country beyond their university is possible, uh, more possible in Canada, UK, Australia than it is in the United States. Uh, so policies are set up to really disincentivize uh, businesses from hiring international students uh, in the United States. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's one of those nuts. But if, if we could crack that nut by saying that F1 students can potentially be uh, Im immigrants to the United States, then they could return home. It's, it's their choice. Uh, and we view that as a choice. We, and we don't put expectations that they have to go home after they finish their studies, which is the default rule. Uh, the 218B, uh, 214B, excuse me, 214B requirement, which is where most international students that can denied visas will be denied because they haven't proven that they're not going to emigrate to the United States after they're done with their study, that their plan is to, em to emigrate to the United States, when technically they can't say that if they're in applying for a non-immigrant visa category 
even though legally it is possible after graduation they get OPTs still on their F1. A company hires them while they're an F1 OPT student to become an H1B that allows them to be in the country for um, an initial three up to six six years and then apply for permanent residency during that six-year period. So it is possible even though their initial visa category does not allow them to stay. So it's a very convoluted process. Some some students, uh, particularly those uh, who uh, get on OPT and get with companies that want to hire them more permanently, uh, that process can take six to ten years or longer uh, for applicants to get to that green card stage where they become permanent residents. So we don't make it easy in any stretch. Uh, we are disadvantaged in a lot of ways by that single intent being you have to prove you're a non-immigrant in order to get your visa to come here in the first place. Uh, so that's that's a challenge. So that's my, my recommendation for one of those game-changer things that has to happen before we're really going to be able to move forward and really take advantage of all the very positive things we have in the U.S. Uh, to, uh, to drive our country forward on the international education front. So there's a lot in that, and I hope everybody gets a chance to read that article. I talk also about uh, the capacity, and there's another article in Times Higher Ed from uh, Alan Goodman, president and CEO of IIE, um, uh, someone who I've known and respected working for IIE for a number of years uh, myself, uh, but Alan uh, certainly has that uh, historical perspective of of uh, why the U.S. Is, is, is that driving force and can be even better uh, is because of our capacity. We're at 5% of our higher ed, higher ed enrollment are international. In the UK, in Canada, in Australia, they're pushing 30, 35% at a lot of universities. And that politically isn't sustainable. Though funding-wise, they need those international students to, to fund their institutions, programs, and, and do all the other things they need to do. Politically, there are limits, as we're seeing in the UK. Uh, too many dependents coming with too many students uh, uh, to the UK in the past year on these one-year master's programs has caused the government, the current conservative government in the UK, to react quite negatively towards that. They've now banned those dependents. Uh, and that's something that we need to address here in the United States. We don't have that particular issue, but uh, what that ex uh, ex tremendous increase, they were up to over, over 680,000 uh, record numbers that they've had in the UK for international students. And now they're having a reaction. And that bad press from that dependent ban is going to have knock-on consequences. You know, there's even talk of uh, the government limiting post-study work again, which they did back in 2009. So a lot of potential damaging things happening in, in the UK. In Canada, they're struggling in certain provinces with uh, capacity to keep adding new international students. In some, uh, there's clear, uh, uh, in, in, in Quebec, uh, international students are being denied visas now because there are suspects, suspected fraud for those that have come, particularly for vocational programs. Similarly, in Australia, you're seeing the same kind of thing. Australia made the mistake of, of giving uh, international students unlimited work uh, off-campus are up to 40 hours a week work off-campus uh, during the pandemic and they're now set to reverse that as of I think later this month so that will no longer be an option and we'll, we'll see if that trend of uh, students coming from to Australia will continue so uh, there's a lot of challenges that go into this uh, that government policy can impact positively but oftentimes it's uh, the government's reacting to 
perceived problems in the market uh, because of lack of control, institutional control, government control over who's getting visas, who's coming in, who's, uh, what are they coming for, and are these the right uh, right students to be bringing in, uh, given their potential intent uh, longer term. So all of these things are factors that go into play. But why we're not having it anytime soon, I just don't think the political capital and will is there to be spent on this kind of an international ed strategy. Uh, with the, the divisive nature of our, of our country right now, uh, frankly, the, uh, uh, the politics of certain groups uh, that are either far to the right or far to the left that uh, will let anybody in or let nobody in or very restrictive policies on the front end. There are real problems until we get more of a consensus and uh, a more coming together of, of our country on these issues. Uh, remembering that we're a country of immigrants and that's, that's what I always go back to. I'm an immigrant that came to the United States 49 years ago. Uh, June 1st, uh, 1974, my, country, my family emigrated to the United States, and I was an L2, uh, an intercompany transfer dependent. So I was an international student when I first came as a kindergartner, albeit, but my journey uh, is representative of what this country is all about or can be and the potential this country can have uh, and what we're allowed to be uh, as Americans uh, and those that choose to come here and work. Um, that's something that we, we have to address. Immigration reform is top of that list. And un unfortunately, the pieces that we need to get passed to uh, have been in recent bills, and uh, the uh, President Biden's Build Back Better bill ha included a provision to make um, make F-1 a dual intent category. A recent uh, bill we uh, featured last week in the roundup, uh, or last week in our newsletter, also included that called the Dignity Act, but it, it also it was one line in the in the bill, but it had uh, the bill was it was this was thrown in with uh, a variety of other border control and immigration uh, pathways for dreamers and other skilled laborers that come to the United States or unskilled laborers that come to the United States. Uh, building those in, those are politically, unfortunately, politically very hotly challenged. Uh, hotly charged issues that are unlikely to pass as a whole. And our one line for, for F1 students uh, to be dual intent, unfortunately, is probably going to get lost in that shuffle. Because the, if they can't do that, and Congress can't pass that, then there's little hope of anything concrete happening that would be a, a signal to the world that, hey, we're serious about uh, growing our, and having an international ed strategy. Uh, in our country. We need it, but is it going to happen? Not anytime soon. So long, long story short, there we are. Let's move on to our second question of the day. Why does meeting international student expectations matter? Really, this is a kind of a two-part question. It's really, are, how are you managing international student expectations in terms of showing, sharing with students what you can actually deliver on uh, on your campus and in your communities, in your state for jobs and all of these types of things long term. And then what are you actually delivering on? And it, it, expectations can be everything from uh, how well uh, they're going to adapt to classes in the United States, what their expectations before they arrive are related to who's going to be in the classroom with them, or what are they going to be able to do, what their living arrangements are going to be, uh, what and this, uh, some are thinking and parents are certainly thinking, particularly for undergraduates, what are, my, what are the prospects for employment after I graduate? And there's a couple of articles this week, uh, one's from Inted that shares 
the need to manage those expectations and how do you meet them? And what does meeting those expectations mean long-term in terms of your success as an institution, meeting your goals for enrollment, uh, meeting your goals for, hopefully your goals aren't just enrollment goals, they are graduating successful alumni goals. Uh, as we talk about, and I've, I've shared how we do it at UNLV, it's been a part of my six P's of strategic international enrollment management. Uh, I'm gonna be um, uh, talking more about that over the coming months as well. Uh, but as to uh, meeting expectations, also, before you can do that, you really need to set those expectations so and temper those expectations in terms of reality. But part of what uh, the importance of meeting international student expectations really means is um, is painting that picture for what the reality is going to be like for those students when they get to your campus. And as much as possible, that needs to be bang on. Here's what current students are going through. Here, let them tell the stories. And then you delivering on those promises. And you much would, would much rather under-promise and over-deliver when you're talking about expectations, right? Because we've all heard promises. I certainly heard a ton of them last week at NAFSA, meeting with the prospective vendors that are service providers that wanted to work with us. They're saying, oh, we can deliver X number of students in the first year. Oh, this, we will be uh, having X new uh, partnerships that we'll be able to generate for you in the next year. And the reality is n next to none of them will be able to meet those lofty expectations. And if I added up all the new students that I could be enrolling as a result of the conversations I've had last night, we'd be oversubscribed by about a, a thousand students a year. But I know that's not going to happen, even if I did go with all of them. I, I, I have to have straight and hard, hard conversations with everybody that we potentially sign with, whether it's a new overseas partner institution, whether it's a new service provider, a new agent, that, hey, what is this real relationship really going to deliver on? Because uh, that's important for me as an institution, someone who's been in international ed now for 30 years. I know what the uh, what the uh, what the I've been on both sides of this conversation as a service provider and also as an as an institution rep for many years at different institutions. That those conversations that you have, you never buy anything from a conversation you have at a at a conference. You buy it after developing relationships with the people so that you can know and trust who they are. You can see the evidence of their past work. And you can see, uh, if it's a newer venture, you can see the promise by seeing who they're aligning with, uh, who else is buying into this kind of a dream. So these are the things that, meet those, in terms of meeting expectations, this is what you need to be doing with your students, uh, not promising the moon and then having them come and have a bad experience that, and they experience nothing of what you told them or a very small part of it. You want them to come and see what you promised and more, uh, not uh, what you promised and only a quarter or a third of it. Uh, they need to see the value, um, not only from what you say, but also from, again, like I was sharing, what are, who else, who's currently working with you that is someone I would want to uh, compare myself to and see myself as. Uh, that's what international students want. They want to have those conversations with current students. And when they can drive those expectations and manage them for you by presenting their actual experience, that's what's going to help you meet those needs. Because new students coming in, they don't know all the ins and outs of your campus. They don't know all the things that they're going to get to experience on your campus that they've never even thought were even possible. And only through having those current students share the, their stories and then the, your new, com, new incoming students experience that, that's where you have the true 
uh, meeting of, of the minds of the, all the coming together of all the best laid plans and you see, wow, they, 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 they had chance to talk to our current students. They heard what the reality is for those students. They've heard what we've said about what's possible for them. And then when they get here and actually experience that and so much more, that's when you know, oh my goodness, we, we've done it. We've cracked the code here. We know the secret now. And when you're doing that on a regular and consistent basis with by engaging your current students in those new student conversations, you're up on top. Now, this is something that will, will impact us all uh, in what we do. And uh, so, some years you'll be really good at it. You feel like you're having these conversations. You've got the right content that you can plug into your, converse, into your conversations with prospective students and parents, that there, there's ways to bridge that gap and to make those expectations managed, but also a reality uh, that uh, whatever is promised is what you can deliver on. And that, that's why it matters, because that's how you can build your, your success and build a cohort of uh, happy graduates and successfully employed graduates or onto the next level of their education graduates, and then using their stories to reinforce what your messaging is uh, to your next class coming in. So that's why they matter when you can do that consistently. Final piece, that's a real quick one. Uh, you may have seen it last week. Uh, Canada, uh, their IRCC uh, board that uh, sets the r rules for what, uh, what, what immigrants to Canada can do, what students in this case uh, need to take in terms of English proficiency tests uh, to uh, qualify for entrance. Up until recently, IELTS was the only uh, test that Canadian prospective international students going to Canada could take to enter into the student direct stream. And that's the kind of the uh, fast track for study permits, uh, or, which is their equivalent of student, student visas to Canada. Uh, IELTS had been the only one acceptable. Uh, as of last week, uh, they have now accepted TOEFL, they've accepted PTE Academic, and a couple of other minor uh, English, English proficiency tests as well as equal criteria or equal tests for uh, students looking to get into the student direct stream to Canada. Uh, and its institutions. So, what is that? What is that? How does that decision by Canada's IRCC impact an international education company's value? Well, here it is. Uh, IDP uh, is uh, part owner, third owner of uh, IELTS, along with the British Council and the Cambridge Group, uh, Cambridge Education. Uh, that those three own IELTS, and because IELTS was the only test for Canada up until uh, last week. Now, uh, with a wider range of uh, English language tests available, IDP's value on the Australian Stock Exchange dropped 15% last week, or two weeks ago now, as a result of this decision by IRCC to add in these other English language tests. So again, this is the perspective I talk about all the time as part of our six Ps of uh, strategic international enrollment management, is having a perspective on the world. Uh, can, it's now easier for international students to go to Canada in terms of the English proficiency tests that they can take. So how are you demonstrating your um, awareness of that in your messaging in terms of English proficiency on your website, in terms of what are, what are the many ways that uh, students can come to your institution and document their English proficiency? Uh, is it through tests or is it through their curriculum in high school or college? What are the many ways that they can do that? Uh, so that's something you need to be aware of in your messaging because these actions have consequences around the globe. And until we realize that and, and remember that and have that influence our decision making, 
uh, for what we do in our offices, how we message, even on something as minor as this, as an English proficiency test, which isn't minor, it's major. But that one decision by Canada is now impacting what uh, the value of an international education company, one of the giants in our field. Uh, IDP. So uh, be aware of the world around you. And hopefully this this podcast, uh, this roundup live chat, our news newsletter on Mondays keeps you in the loop on what's going on. I know we're all busy, but we do need to stay plugged in and not be 100% down, heads down, let's get it done, let's get it done, keep the blinders on and get focused. You really need to be, keep, a, keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, around the world. And hopefully we can help you get there. So thanks again for being a part of the conversation this week, and we look forward to chatting with you at an upcoming event, uh, live or in person. Uh, We'll be back with you live uh, next Wednesday, the 14th of June, before we head to China for two weeks. I'll be excited to share some of those details next week. Have a great day. Look forward to chatting soon.